This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey everybody, welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. I've got Dr. Seif with us talking about the uh, the Tree of Life version TLV. I almost called it the NLT. Uh, those acronyms get hairy quick. Uh, it's going to be an exciting program. You guys stay tuned. You are watching the Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. We have an exciting program for you today. We're going to be talking about the Tree of Life version, a Bible translation that's often used in Messianic communities, communities that are passionate about Jewish roots. Uh, we've got one of uh, the people who've worked on that translation committee and, and worked as the kind of theological editor of that project with us today, uh, Dr. Seif, and we're going to give him a moment to introduce himself. But before I do that, I want to remind you that Remnant Radio is entirely crowdfunded. If you want to support the channel, there are links in the description. I don't know if you know, but we're going through a series right now on debunking cessationism. Uh, we were watching this two hour and 30 minute documentary and we're going basically clip by clip through this whole thing, taking 15 minute, uh, or not 15 minutes, taking 30 second clips, 60 second clips, going through the arguments and just kind of debunking them one after the other. Uh, even cessationists are watching our stuff going, yeah, this is, this is pretty good. So uh, I encourage you subscribe because we have content like this and content like that coming out regularly. So if you've been blessed by the ministry and you want to support, there are ways to do so in the description. Uh, guys, I've got Michael Roundtree with me and Dr. Seif. Uh, Michael, are you excited about today's program? I am excited about today's program. So we've we've talked about the Tree of Life version before, and uh, we had a perspective that you know preferred other versions. And then, uh, but now we have uh, we're going straight to the source here uh, with Dr. Seif being able to explain uh, the heart behind the Tree of Life version. So I, that's what we do at Render Radio. We try to host a variety of conversations. Uh, and Christians are going to disagree about uh, things, but we can be brothers and sisters about it and do so uh, with the right spirit. So, uh, Dr. Saif, excited to have you on the show and share your perspective and learn from you a little bit. So, uh, Dr. Saif, could you tell us maybe a little bit about yourself and your ministry? Sure. What do you want to know about myself? Background, education? Um, social security number, uh, address. Just kidding. Well, so, uh, uh, yeah, Dr. Seif, I'd say, tell us a little about your, your background in ministry and, and even police work. I mean, you you are a busy guy. I remember when I met you at Christ for the Nations, I heard this story. You just reiterated it to me. It reminded me that you had like a, a, a crazy disease that got you paralyzed and, uh, you know, you got healed of that by whether, you know, God's providence or just natural kind of uh, uh, medical uh, work and how you've just kind of lived your life, poured out for the gospel ever since. I. It'd be fun to get a, a Cliff Notes version. Okay. Well, Seif is a German name. I'm of German Jewish extract. Uh, my wife, mm-hmm. Barry, and I are both born and raised Jewish, both parents. Uh, I came to faith in, in Jesus, whom we like to refer to as Yeshua, 
subsequent to which I went and took studies at the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. I graduated finally uh, with religious education. I did it at a university, Southern Methodist University, where I picked up a, uh, a master's degree in doctorate, you know, theology, ministry, and what have you. I, um, on the other hand, I have, as noted, a career in law enforcement. I'm a proud graduate of the North Texas Regional Police Academy. I also have a, a master's degree from Cambridge University in England in applied criminology and police management. And I'm a part-time PhD student in criminology currently in uh, Cambridge. So I go back and forth to England a lot. I, uh, I, in my ministry, I am an adjunct professor at Christ for the Nations Institute and other places. I uh, also uh, pastor a Hebrew Christian, a Messianic Jewish congregation in the Dallas area. I serve as the executive director of the Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations, which is the federation of Messianic Jewish congregations globally. I also uh, um, have different writing projects and like, so I'm pretty engaged and I've served uh, as the, um, they picked me up to be the project manager for the Tree of Life Bible, which brings us here today. <laughs> Dearly beloved. So, so what you're saying is uh, you don't really do much of anything. You just kind of hang around, just chill, eat potato chips. Not, potato not a super busy guy uh, between police work and the church and ministry and schools that you're working at. That's wild. You know, you are the first person we've interviewed that like has a background in police work and Bible translations. I think that's interesting. It's a good comment. Well, hey, it's awesome. I retired my commissions in police, by the way. I still, I superintend three police academies through the Dallas College system, but my last day is January the 5th, uh, 2024. So I, uh, I don't carry a, a badge in my wallet anymore. Uh, because <laughs> Okay. Well, maybe you could just uh, help us define some terms because sometimes, you know, okay. people talk past one another because we're talking about different things. Uh, talk to us about uh, what does it mean to be a messianic Christian? So maybe we could define that because in some sense, some someone out there is probably, does that make me messianic Christian? So uh, maybe talk talk to us through that. And then there, there are two movements, the Jewish roots movement and, and then the Hebraic or Hebrew roots movement. What's the difference between these? Is one good and one bad? And so those terms well, and any other terms that you think we need to define on the, on the front side? I'll let others decide what's good and bad, but I'll just explain the differences. Um, sure. Messianic Jews are people that want to participate in the Jesus story on the one hand and participate in the Jewish story on the other. You know, if a black person accepts Jesus Christ, you don't say, well, how long aren't you glad you're a converted black person? I mean, you still have your culture and your identity, uh, but the, Jesus is included with that. Uh, I was born and raised of Jewish extract. People come to me and say, hey, Saif, how long have you been a converted Jew? And I'd like to say I'm a converted sinner I'm not a converted Jew. It's not a sin to be a Jew. I never said, Jesus, please forgive me for being Jewish. Gee, I promise I'll never do that again. Messing with Jewish people who want to live within a Jewish world. And people have said, no, you have to dump all that if you want to accept Jesus. You go become a Baptist, a Pentecostal, but you got to be into the new thing, not the Jew thing. And, you know, that's yesterday's news. You got to read the new newspaper to get, you know, catch on with the program. And messing with Jewish people still want to, you know, we still want to live in Jewish culture. Uh, 
and it's dear to us. The Jesus story is indeed, indeed dear, dear to us as well, principally. Um, but, uh, but we still kind of maintain fidelity to the culture. And, and that entails, you know, the congregations meet on the Sabbath, not on a Sunday. Uh, typically, the Jewish holidays that are noted in biblical literature are celebrated, as opposed to the stuff that came many years later. You know, Christmas came 500 years after, you know, 400 years after. You know, it wasn't part of the part of the program initially. Uh, but Messianic Jews, you know, kind of live in the Jewish world, and there are people like myself of Jewish extract that still want to live within that. And then there are women and men of non-Jewish extract that kind of fall in love with that, looking at the good news to the eyes of the Jews and want to participate in the journey. And that's Messianic Judaism. Uh, Hebrew roots. These are people principally of non-Jewish extract that fall in love with things Jewish and really get into it 100% on steroids and not only get into it, but insist this is the it that everyone needs to get into. And thus people that are Christians that worship on Sunday and celebrate Christmas and all that kind of, be, you know, they're seen as children of a lesser God, you know, that, that, that uh, uh, they're kind of disparaged. Now, those Hebrew roots type people are not received in the Jewish world, because in the Messianic Jewish world, because we don't believe that someone has to sign up for this journey in order to really do Jesus right. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. it, it, we feel called into it and we do it, but uh, we're no better than someone who uh, gathers together on a Sunday and says Jesus instead yeah. of Yeshua. Some of those other groups are just a little more ramped up for our tastes. You know, Jewish yeah. people don't everyone has to become Jewish in order to please God. And Messianic Jews don't believe everyone needs to hop on this bandwagon in order to be accepted. But it just seems, and I'll stop rambling in a second, that, you know, a number of Jewish people came to faith and 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 uh, went and got seminary educated and, you know, started contributing as leaders in the whole Jesus enterprise. And people started banding together and wanting to live it out as Jews, principally. So that's kind of what messing a Jewish experiences in a nutshell. Okay. Super helpful. No, I appreciate that. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about, I mean, the reason we're gathering together talking about the tree of life Bible. I mean, can you tell us what is this translation? What was the inspiration philosophy behind the translation and, and what makes it different than other Bibles out on the market yeah. today? Yeah, it's a natural byproduct. By the way, I'm glad anyone reads any Bible in any version. I mean, I really don't care at one level, you know, that you open up a Bible and start talking about it, and the Lord works through it. So even as being a principal personality in this Tree of Life version, there's no hubris associated with it that thinks this is the happening act. But what it is, is it's the byproduct of this community uh, of, of, of Jewish people who accepted Jesus, went and got the requisite masters and doctoral degrees, and want to get their hands in the clay of tendering a translation of the literature that is a little more sensitive to the Jewish origins of the Jesus story. Now, you know, we think that if you look at the New Testament, it's a story about a Jew named, a Jew named Jesus who preached to Jewish people from the Jewish scripture in the Jewish language in the Jewish homeland. There were some Jews who accepted him, and there were some Jews who didn't. For us, the New Testament's a very Jewish story, but it's become un-Jewish and anti-Jewish through time and circumstance. And what the Tree of Life version wants to do is just resurrect the the, the Jewishness of, of, of the Jesus story, principally. And the way it does that, in part, is by retaining the language. For example, Jesus' name wasn't Jesus. His name was Yeshua. His mother wasn't Mary. Her name was Miriam. He wasn't born in Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. 
Now, what the Hebrew, what the Tree of Life Bible does very selectively, it chooses to retain uh, some of the, uh, you know, the, the the Hebrew nature of the story, not too much. We had a committee that decided how many words we wanted to retain. But a distinguishing characteristic is you read the Newer Testament in the Tree of Life, and you're going to think you're bumping into a Jewish story, not simply a Jesus story. And, and that's very important to us. Okay. And so how did you guys draw the line about how far you push this? Because, you know, like in some ways, it's kind of like, do we translate any? Well, do we translate anything? Of course, it was in, in Greek. But I, I mean, just how do you how did you make sense of like, when do we go the Jewish route? When do we uh, when do we not? Well, one of the characteristics is it's, it's a community endeavor. Uh, it wasn't a me thing, it's a we thing. We had a theology committee. We had various editorial committees that kind of worked on parameters. And, and we just decided on how many words we used and what we did want to bring forth and what we didn't. You know, some words we wouldn't be inclined to bring forth because they don't add any value. You know, if you run into Yeshua instead of Jesus, you bump into that and you go, oh, well, that's, that's Jewish. I never thought of that. But there's a lot of Hebrew names in the, in the text and we didn't, we, we left a lot of things just as they are. We wanted to be selective in, in things that we thought might contribute to um, our story, but not make it so riddled with Hebraisms that a reader gets lost in it because they feel like it's an alien world. Now, I should say that the, the, the Tree of Life version is kind of a second. It's, it's not the first kitty in the litter. Uh, the first uh, was by David Stern, a, a scholar, a PhD out of Princeton, a Master of Divinity degree out of Fuller, uh, who had worked with Jews for Jesus and was part of the, uh, the Messianic Jewish community. And uh, he produced the, uh, you know, the Jewish New Testament and then the complete Jewish Bible. And he just went in it and rearranged a lot of the furniture, you know, minded to explore and bring forth how Jewish this whole story is from Genesis all the way to maps. And, and uh, so everything was kind of transliterated Hebrew. And uh, the thinking was, is, you know, it was too much for people because they just got lost in all of that. And so we wanted to be more moderated. So it was a committee that decided all that. And, you know, it wasn't, um, okay. it wasn't a singular person like David. It was, a committee number of committee. Well, well weigh in on that for us because you know we we love if you're going to do a bible translation we're big fans of committees right uh not to say that we're baptist we're not like we don't need a committee to plan the committee to to do the translation uh, but I'm, I'm curious how did you select those committee members was there a diversity of theological backgrounds were there a a diversity of theological um, uh, practices, some in history, some in theology, you know, some yeah. interpretation. Maybe maybe give us some background on, on these individuals and how their diversity helped bring together this translation. They come from different places that occupy different spaces. Uh, what we wanted, we wanted either Jewish people who had come to faith in Jesus and then went and got a terminal degree by virtue of their so doing, they've earned the right to a hearing to participate in this kind of adventure. Uh, a master's degree minimally, a lot of times it's doctoral degrees. Jewish people came to faith. They went to various schools. You know, it can be, you know, uh, uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, Southwestern Baptist Seminary. It can be 
any, you know, that, so we, these were Jewish people who came to faith in Jesus, also known as Yeshua, surrendered to a call to the ministry and went on and took advanced studies. Or someone who's of non-Jewish extract that went to a Jewish school to study. For instance, we have some people that, uh, that took degrees, you know, a PhD from Hebrew University, Jerusalem, or a PhD in Semitic languages from Hebrew Union College. And for instance, there's one woman, Helen Delaire, uh, fell in love with the Lord, fell in love with the Jewish people, went and took a PhD in Semitic languages from Hebrew Union, which trains rabbis. And she was so good at Hebrew, they asked her to come, she's a Gentile woman, they asked her to come back and be a Hebrew professor for people studying to be rabbis. And uh, so we're looking for those criteria now in, in her case, uh, uh, in, in some cases, there are individuals that are of Pentecostal charismatic origin, some not. Uh, we, I wasn't particularly concerned about that. What we wanted principally were people that were um, either of Jewish extract who took terminal degrees in seminary or of non-Jewish extract but went and took uh, education in Jewish schools. Then we have some in-between folk. You know, one of our scholars was a former student of mine, Ehab Grace at Christ for the Nations Institute. He's an Egyptian. He was a pharmacist, and he left CFNI and went and took a PhD uh, from Southern Seminary uh, in uh, Semitic languages. He did a doctoral dissertation on the nature of the relationship between Masoretic text Hebrew and classical Arabic. You know, and uh, so he comes from the Islamic world, uh, hmm. but he, he came to faith. So it's a diverse group, but the, the tie that binds is an interest in looking at the good news through the eyes of the Jews. We wanted to go Semitic. Yeah. Well, uh, so on that, do you feel like in, like modern translate English translations of the Bible go over the top and trying to strip the Hebrew meaning from it and the taking out all the Hebrew transliterations where they could have stuck with them, like Mary and Miriam and those kinds of things? Do you, do you feel like they're over the top, or is your translation not necessarily critical of those, but rather just wanting to pro provide an option for Jewish readers of, of the Bible and people who, who come from your stream and background to be able to view it through a more Jewish lens. In other words, is there a criticism toward current English translations on this, or is it more like, hey, this is just this is another translation that's beautiful and great and unique in its own way that we want to put option, out on the on the option, buffet of translations? Option number two, uh, period. Okay. No terms that, that uh, it's not born out of a critique. It's just that we wanted to tell our story, and and we thought it's been obscured. I think it's a shame that, that uh, you know, we live in a world today where many forgot about the early Jewish origins. I mean, Christianity initially was a, was a Jewish movement, began in Judea. You know, I wrote a book mm -hmm. in early history, the first hundred years to look at it, but the, it all evolved and it evolved out of its Jewish world and people forgot the Jewish background to it. We just want to bring it forth. We just want to stimulate that. And, 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 mm -hmm. uh, so that's principally what this is. Now, there's more than one way to skin a cat. I and a number of others just participated in a new study Bible that's coming out that Zondervan Publishing is is doing with using the NIV. And there we're just bringing, we're not working with the text, 
but we're bringing, you know, study Bible, looking at it, you know, from Jewish perspectives. It's just looking to contribute to the story. And yeah. uh, so yeah. that's possibly. Okay. I've, I've got a question about that, because in talking about study Bibles, study, study Bibles can be viewed as like resources. Um, we interviewed uh, uh, a man by the name of Scott McKnight recently, and he was talking about his work on the, the Second Testament. It wasn't a translation committee. He didn't want people to view it as like their primary reader, their daily driver of what they're reading every day. Uh, as much as he wanted them to read a very wooden translation that was kind of hard and choppy, um, so that th when they came across uh, a phrase that was kind of important in Greek that the reader would be kind of passing over if they were reading a kind of massaged English translation, that they would kind of be jarred by the reading of it and then know, okay, I should I should be studying this to find deeper meaning. When when you look at the, the, the Tree of Life version, do you view it as a resource that you would say, I want you to use this alongside of a modern translation? Or do you think like... In and of itself, like this is a this is a good translation for a daily driver. Like how how are you viewing this? And I I could see it being a both end, but I'm just curious to hear from you. Well, you know, I'll I'll take it anyway. The reality is, many people have more than one version of the Bible, and uh, principally, what this is is for those who appreciate the whole you know messing of Jewish story and experience and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, where God's doing amongst Jewish people, want to recover it. Certainly, this is a great recovery Bible, and it's certainly uh, the, the fact that it flies off the shelves attests to the fact that people are finding value in it, just beyond our own movement. Uh, but uh, you know, I'm glad anybody reads any version anytime, and and mm -hmm. uh, uh, but some use it as their, you know their primary text. I teach a course um, in the Bible, and and, and uh, as a professor, and I use it, and I'm comfortable doing so. Yeah. Well, I love your I love your open handed approach with this. That even back to when you were describing the Hebrew roots movement versus the Jewish roots movement, and just where you're saying like, "Hey, in our congregation, we just we want to pursue it this way. It's meaningful to us, but we're not placing demands on others." And that's personally where I start to get a little squeamish about when we're starting to put demands on people. Keep the feast day and do it on Saturday, and and, and all you know, only eat these kinds of foods. Cause I, I think we have, you know, certain new Testament verses, especially when we talk about foods and festivals, but, uh, but I have no problem with people living that way when they find meaning in it. And there is beauty in the feasts and so on. So I, I love your open handedness to that. And I see the same thing here in the translation, like, Hey, this is one of many, like, if you enjoy the other translations have at it, I'm just glad you read the Bible. So I, I love that. Uh, but I also want to kind of pull in like a, a potential critique, okay? And so this was, uh, we had Mark Ward on the show. I kind of alluded to this other episode that we did at the top of the show uh, where Mark Ward had some thoughts about the TLV and, it, and he was really kind and charitable and all of that. But he he brought up the the rebuttal, like, so if, you're, if your goal is to give it a more Jewish flavor, he says, it seems as though the authors of the New Testament are, are maybe even in some ways trying to strip it of the Jewish flavor. For instance, where, uh, where the word, the, the Lord's name could have been translated as, as Yahweh. They chose the Greek word for Lord or uh, where the Hebrew word, you know, for Messiah, they translate it as Christ. And they're often quoting from the Septuagint and not the Masoretic text. And 
Uh, and so he, he cites these kinds of things to say, it seems as though the authors of the New Testament are trying to make it more accessible to the Hellenized world out there, the Greek-speaking, non-Jewish world. And so then we have a Bible translation that seems to be doing it a different way than what the Spirit inspired. Of course, he was all kind and charitable, and I'm sure you've if you guys were on the show together, y'all would have a lovely conversation about it. But uh, I, I'd love to hear just kind of your your response and how how would you respond to the objection that it seems like New Testament authors were possibly trying to even strip it of some of the Jewishness uh, to give it more handle and access for the Gentile audience. How would you respond? Well, I think it's fair to say that Paul the Apostle was very much interested in being cosmopolitan. And uh, <laughs> it, was, it was a core value of his to cultivate an appreciation that the Jesus story is for the world, not just for the Jews. And he pushed it mm -hmm. so hard he got himself in trouble. So I, I think it's a fair point. But where I differ in terms of this intentionality to strip it in the literature, I think it's a bit much to say, well, you know, if you look at the New Testament authors, they, they, they use the, the Greek and they, 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 they they don't say Yahweh, they say Lord, and, you know, they use the Septuagint. I think it's important to understand the Septuagint was per, penned in the, in the third century BC by Jews. The Septuagint was a Greek translation. In fact, if, if you look at first century Judea at funeral inscriptions where people are being commended to their maker, only 4% of them in Hebrew, the better part of them are in Greek and in Latin. That's just the nature of the world because it was a thoroughly Hellenized world at the time. So the fact that, that you're looking at the utilization of the Septuagint um, uh, among the authors is, is just, it's the lingua franca, it's the language of the day in so many ways. Uh, Jerusalem was very cosmopolitan and even up in the Galilee, the Galilee area was administrated out of Syria, out of Antioch. And you know, there's the, the capitalist, there's, there's Greek cities round about. So uh, I, think, I think it's fair to observe that the uh, the first century world was Hellenistic, um, and certainly that, that, that's reflected in the literature. Um, but um, I, I think it would be a bit much to say they're just breathing their idiom and breathing their moment, but, but to ascribe intentionality to that looking, they're looking to push away from this, from this Jewish stuff. I, I think it, it, it's, it's reading into the intention of the authors uh, something that uh, that wouldn't necessarily be there. One could argue it is that way with Paul. Paul is typically construed as, you know, dumping things Jewish in favor of, uh, but I think a more careful reading of Paul, um, uh, he's on record explicitly um, wanting to adhere to fidelity within the Jewish world. So, Anyways, that's I'm I'm curious if you couldn't argue it the other way though, uh, Doctor Seif. If you were to say, well, Paul is trying to translate things specifically for his Gentile community, but I'm trying to translate things specifically for my Jewish community. Like, couldn't you use the argument that it was contextualized to his audience to say I'm contextualizing it to my audience? Like, I'm trying to write for a group of people who are Messianic Jews. That, that's a great point, but but. Here's the thing, one of the things about Paul, in my opinion, Josh, you know, he's called the apostle to the Gentiles, but I'm very suspicious of that personally. First of all, 
If you look at Paul's Gentiles, he wasn't passing out pamphlets all over the place and picking people up. Paul met his Gentiles in synagogues. All of his Gentiles were half-baked Jews. These were people who were attracted to the Jewish story. And then Paul shows up in the synagogue and, and, he, and he gets a hearing because he's a Pharisee and he starts talking and then the, the, the people in charge realize he's not quite what they expected. Um, but, the, but Paul's Gentiles, uh, almost without exception, were half-baked Jews. They were Jewish lovers. They were familiar with the God of Israel. They would have known to varying degrees the covenants, the scriptures. And it is true that, that, that Paul was endeavoring uh, to, to speak directly to them. But to your point, and I don't want to ramble, it is great. Paul's genius was his ability to contextualize. And that really is what, what we're trying to do here, is, is present the Bible in a way that, that comports with Jewish sensibilities and works principally in the Jewish context. Can I ask you specifically about like that Jewish context? Has this Bible been used in evangelism to Jewish people, uh, people who are ethnically Jewish, not necessarily just the, the Messianic movement, that would include those in the Jewish root space who'd be Gentiles. You just have a, a great appreciation for Jewish history and tr history, <laughs> history and tradition. If they became one word, it's history. <laughs> okay, so uh, if they uh, it, it has this translation been fruitful in its evangelistic efforts to those who are ethnically Jewish. Well, here let let me sound like a Cambridge social scientist now and go on that hat. At. Uh, I don't have any empirical data to know uh, who's doing what with this text and how many people are coming to faith as a result of it. Uh, to be able to make any claims that it is at the cutting edge of evangelism, uh, I, I, I think if I said that, I'd be getting ahead of what I really know to be true. I just don't know. I, I, I know that uh, it, uh, it enjoys favor uh, in the broader Christian culture, aside from the, the, the good man who came and offered a critique of it. And I would have differentiated from him a little bit, but I thought he was a good fella. I didn't agree with everything that he said. But, but keep in mind that this uh, translation is championed by the, the likes of, you know, Gateway Church and Dallas, probably one of the largest, fastest growing evangelical megachurches in the country. And, and, and uh, Jack Hayford, who's a luminary in a previous generation, you know, helped, you know, people contributed to it, their name, their seal and finances. And uh, just in, 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 in the last few, you know, just two weeks ago, you know, TBN did a one hour special on the children's Bible saying, well, all the, all the little kitty need, kitties need to get this. And, and, and uh, so I, I, I know it's getting out there. Uh, but I just don't, I, I can't speak uh, so much about the end user, save the fact that as a professor, at, let's say Christ for the Nations Institute, people come up to me, oh, look, I found your name in the forward of this Bible, you know, and so I know, I know it's kind of people are washing up on the shores that are readers of it, but I don't know what kind of utility it's getting out of. I don't know if any more Jewish people are coming to faith because they, someone shows them this Bible or someone shows them something else. I have no reason to think that this Bible is getting the job done in that others, quite frankly. Okay. Well, so Josh has kind of looked externally at evangelism as uh, has the TLV, you know, upended world evangelization. And I, I appreciate your honesty about, you know, kind of where, what you know of global statistics on that. So, uh, but now let's maybe to look internally. I, I'm curious for you 
spiritual life. So let's just take the word Yeshua instead of Jesus. Does it do something for your soul to refer to him as Yeshua? I'm not talking, I'm not asking you to make a statement about what it will do for everyone else's soul, but you personally, uh, as a Jewish believer in Jesus Christ, does it do something for you in your spiritual life to to refer to him as Yeshua and as a corollary to that, any other of the sort of Hebrew transliterations uh, that we come across in the TLV? I use the language interchangeably, Jesus and Yeshua. Um, and I'm just glad people call on him. I don't care what they call him personally. Uh, but for me, uh, I want to participate in this learning the good news through the eyes of the Jews. And, and uh, to use the word Yeshua, and to the extent it reminds people, oh, well, wait a minute, Jesus was Jewish. Or, you know, to, to mention Bethlehem, Bethlehem, oh, Oh yeah, that's Israel. To remind people that uh, where this all came from, and then even just beyond the reminder of it, uh, you start looking at the story through a Jewish lens. That's a whole other thing beyond the translation. Oxford University Press recently published uh, what they referred to as the annotated Jewish New Testament, and these were all Jewish scholars, not even Messianic Jewish people like me but individuals of Jewish extract that, uh, that went and studied first century literature, the New Testament. And it, it's a great commentary to look at all the interrelationships between what you're finding in the Jesus story and uh, the story beyond Jesus in the writing of the, the emissaries, the apostles, and to look at all the Jewish background stuff that can elucidate the narrative. Uh, it's just fascinating. Not only that is, you know, I mean, I, I, I took my advanced degree from Southern Methodist University. Vanderbilt University is a sister school, and they have a prominent New Testament scholar there. She is an Orthodox Jew. Her name is Amy Jill Levine. And it's all about Jewish studies brought to bear on the Jesus story. And, and uh, I think a, tr a translation that elicits that and further inquiry into that uh, yields a kind of dividend in study that wouldn't otherwise be there. I, I think it's oft neglected and misunderstood. And uh, unfortunately today, um, that it, it's just been lost time and circumstance. And I'm all about uh, wanting to uh, recover that original story. And I should just say, by the way, at the risk of rambling, as a professor in, in hermeneutics, you know, when you want to talk about how to interpret the literature. There's a principle in, inter in hermeneutics that the first interpretation of any text belongs to the original hearers. Never mind opening up 1 Corinthians and saying, well, here's what the Lord is saying to me. Well, no, what's, he, what's Paul saying to the Corinthians? We'll get to you later. I mean, for pietistic and devotional reading, it's important. But for the science of working the literature, you have to know the first reader. And uh, I think it's important to, to reconstruct that first world. Certainly it was a Hellenistic world to, to the point raised earlier, but it's a Jewish Hellenistic world and it's worth appreciating and understanding that in my opinion. So let me let me kind of because uh, we, we've we've asked you know questions on the the utility of it with evangelism, personal you know reflection and those kinds of things. but um, let me let me ask a question because I don't know how the Messianic community works. Like I, I've been around some of the Jewish root stuff, but, but they don't, they don't have, uh, 
you know, like a rabbi that kind of runs their services. You know, uh, I've been kind of in the orbit of people who have an appreciation for the tradition. We integrate Passover into, you know, part of our, our routine, like that, those kinds of things, not not deeply messianic in that regard, um, but but have been able to appreciate some of those aspects. When you use certain phrases in the Tree of Life version that, you know, the average English speaker wouldn't catch, um, does the average Messianic speaker catch those? I mean, you just mentioned, like, I think it was the um, Jerusalem, right? The, the name for Jerusalem, but but you said it, um, I think, with a, with a, a, an, an Hebraic kind of rendering. You know, um, there's a, a phrase in James. Um, I have it written down in my notes. I forget what it was. Uh, Lashon hara, I, I don't know, slander, right? It was translated. Uh, like, does the yeah, average Messianic two, community, one. yeah, does the average Messianic community hear those phrases and go, oh, I know what that Hebrew word means? Um, you know, one of the concerns that Mark brought to our attention was, you know, he, he, he pulled a principle out of 1 Corinthians 14, you know, that says if an unbeliever is in your midst and they hear you rambling in tongues, they're not going to know. They're going to, you know, they're unlearned or an unbeliever, they're going to, they're going to think you're crazy and out of your mind. Now, it's not to say that if you toss one, you know, uh, a Hebrew word into a Bible translation that an unbeliever is going to think you're rambling and out of your mind, they're going to understand that, that there's some kind of context that they don't get. But his idea was that that, that, that principle of making the message accessible to the average listener, um, does that create a, a divide uh, for the people who are reading this Bible who don't know what these words mean? Or does everyone in the Messianic community know what these words mean? Uh, help us help us kind of bridge that gap. Messianic congregations have the same problem that churches have. People rotate in and out all the time. And, and so there's always neophytes. Now, in the Bible itself, there's a glossary, and uh, you know people can look up the words. But all, all groups have their own language. You can go into an evangelical church. And by the way, I don't know if this fellow has ever had a conversation with anyone who was involved in the, in the translation of the Bible or knows anything about a Messianic Jewish community. He's just an outsider with no experience. And I think it's, it's helpful to preface that if that's the case. Uh, but I can assure you that when, when, I accepted, you know, when I accepted Jesus Christ into my heart as my personal Lord and Savior and got born again and spirit-filled, language like that is riddled with alien language. There's concepts you pick up once you're in it. And, uh, you know, holidays of Easter and Christmas and Advent and the special foods, special language. And uh, all of the different Christian denominations have their own subcultures. And there are things that are lost to the uninitiated, whether it's the high church tradition of your, 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 your Catholic, Orthodox, your Lutheran, the more liturgical stuff. There's all kinds of traditions, art and architecture. That's it's like an esoteric community. It's only known to the initiated. Even in the low church tradition, uh, where it's not big on liturgy and stylistic, it has its own tradition of doing non-traditional Christianity. Um, but it, but but the language of, of the church is very it's very idiosyncratic. You know, just even simple language to be born again. I mean, what does that mean? You know, what does it mean to be spirit-filled? Uh, what does it mean to be saved? Uh, uh, there's a sense in which we're kicking around language that warrants explanation. But, you know, someone has some kind of experience 
And, you know, theology has always been normed by the dictum in Latin, fides querens intellectum, faith in search of understanding. Someone is touched by something they haven't experienced with it, and then they go on a journey to find out what it is. And it can be a very beautiful thing. Now, the critique of, of the translation probably, I mean, I thought he looked at it with as an objective a set of eyes as someone can who's an outsider. But I don't know what his experience is with the community and all of that. I think it's just he's too far removed from it to give a fair telling of what's happening with those within it, in my opinion. Okay. So um, we have revisited a few of the of Mark Ward's critiques uh, of the TLV. And one of them was he was kind of hesitant to put the word out there because he didn't want to be sectarian himself and using the label. But he, uh, but he felt as though the TLV fits the definition of a sectarian Bible translation, uh, which here is his definition. And you can tell us maybe you agree or disagree with his definition. Uh, but he describes it as a group of people with somewhat different religious beliefs from those of a larger group to which they belong. So uh, an example of a sectarian Bible translation would be the Passion Translation, which for a time was uh, was part of, was like one of the major translations used by, uh, was it Bible.org or maybe it was the U version? I can't remember which, but they, they actually took it off, probably in part because of Mike Winger's critiques of it. But the Passion Translation by Brian Simmons is full of, of, terminology that's unique to his movement where they multiply the word realm realm is everywhere in the passion translation and the word portal uh is pretty common in the mess uh, in the passion translation and there are others where it's like people in their group and their uh their stream of christianity use these words a lot and so and mark would say well that's that's sectarian seems to unnecessarily divide people who use that translation from the rest of the body of Christ. And, and so that's what he says. It, it looks like the TLV is doing by, by adopting uh, the terminology used by a smaller group within Christendom. So uh, push back on that. How, how would you respond to Mark? Before he does that, I just want everyone to listen, listening right now to go, uh, Michael did not compare the Passion Translation to uh, the Tree of Life in its scholarship and its academic committees and its translation efforts because they are very, very different pieces of work. So I want to say that on the front end. He's only comparing them in relation to it affecting a specific group of individuals specific, rather than the, the larger body of Christ. Adjective so, yeah, of just, sectarianism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. I want to toss it over to you, uh, uh, Dr. Seif, because I, I, don't, I don't want anything of the Passion to rub off on your, your translation. Fine. No, listen, I, I, I thought that the sectarian is a little harder than what I'd go with, that because it has a disparaging connotation. That is, it, it carries negative baggage that I think is, is unfortunate. Uh, if someone says it's a niche, it's like a niche Bible um, uh, for those that want to look at the good news through the eyes of the Jews, uh, you know, that can help Jewish people more comfortably digest the Jesus story that can help Christian people uh, more readily uh, develop an appreciation that this isn't an Anglo-Saxon Protestant religion. You want to talk about niche, 
Jesus wasn't a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. People think that Christianity is a European invention. But the last I checked, the Bible actually began in Israel. And you're looking at the ancient Near East and Mesopotamia, and you're going over to North Africa. It looks to me that it's not European at all. And uh, now you can have people that, that, that work with the European lens because that's that where they are enculturated into and say, well, it looks like, you know, that the, the, uh, the, those people that want to recover the Jewish essence of it, that's sectarian, you know. And uh, to me, um, it's just stronger than I go with. To me, it's not gentlemanly enough. It carries a, a potential negative connotation. I think there's beauty and value in recovering the Jewish origins of the Christian faith. I think there's value in looking at the newer Testament with a, a newer set of eyes and uh, whatever can contribute to that is good. It's a niche version, but you know, we're full of niche versions. You know, that you have young people, you have children's Bibles, you have youth Bibles, you have recovery Bibles. Uh, that, 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 that are geared to help people that need to get daily devotionals to keep away from addictions of one sort or another. There's lots of niches in this world. In fact, the reality is, is that all the different denominations are serving various niches, different kind of people and, and uh, different kind of orientations. And, and, and uh, you know, you can go to a Korean church and there's a Korean culture there, a black church, a Hispanic church, you know, there's a white. I mean, there's all kinds of niches. Why singled out a Bible translation? Say, well, that's sectarian. If you're going to do that, everything's sectarian. Why not just say that God uses different things to reach different people in different niches? God bless. Maybe it doesn't reach me, but I'm only one person in the world. Obviously, it's reaching someone. Dr. Seif, I really appreciate this interview. I think we're probably getting to the point where we need to, you know, round the circle on some of this. I'd like to, if we can, maybe get some of your highlights of like why you would encourage people out there to pick up a copy of, uh, you know, the, the Tree of Life version, why it's important for Christians with, you know, uh, such as myself, even with an Anglo-Saxon background, to to have a kind of accompanied Bible that might might challenge my daily reading. Uh, would you even challenge the the kind of average, uh, you know, a white evangelical church member who doesn't have a messianic you know background to maybe pick up a Bible like this and and read it as an additional resource in their daily reading? I'd be curious if that would be a a, a charge or even a request that you would have on your end. Um, but I also want to get some kind of closing thoughts from Michael Roundtree as we're kind of processing through this interview, uh, some of his thoughts on on where we're going with this Bible translation and, and how he's been able to process now that he's heard, you know, some from Mark Ward and and some from you, Dr. Seif. So I'm going to toss it over to Michael and give you maybe a second to to shout some some thoughts down. Michael, let's, let's start with you as my uh, mouse yeah. decides not to work. Well, once again, I appreciate Dr. Seif's uh, charitableness on all of this and uh, and just openness to different ways of viewing things and just the way you talk about this whole uh, this whole subject. So appreciate that. And I think my my thought, you know, I saw somebody quoted this in the chat and they I think they did hear this on Remnant Radio where we quoted Jack Deere as saying, uh, use because, you know, you're always asked what translation should I use? What translation should I use? And Jack would say, use the one that says love your enemies. And I, I think what he's pointing out with that is that we uh, we can debate all day long about Bible translations, and and it actually it's an important debate. I don't want to take away from that. I think it's right for us to try to accurately and rightly divide the Word of Truth. 
But at the same time, if we're doing that but not obeying it, then we're missing the point. The point of the scripture is to point us to Jesus, to love him, enjoying his friendship and obeying him. And so if you're reading the Bible in that way, and, and you're reading the TLV and it's helping you in that way, by all means, read the TLV. Or if the ESV is helping you, you know, ESV I see online all the time, getting all kinds of criticisms, but uh, not from scholars really, but just people who decided they didn't like it. And, uh, and, and I'm just, I'm just looking at like these kind of people get so entrenched in these things. And I'm just like, love Jesus, seek him in the scripture obey the scripture. That's where I want to go with it. But I, I, I still, again, I don't want to take away from the debate. I think it's important, but it's only important insofar as it's actually driving us to truth and loving Jesus more and obeying, not just so one person can be right. So uh, anyway, but uh, I think that would be my closing thought. Dr. Seif, what about you? What, uh, what would be your your closing thought nugget for us to take home? Well, personally, I mean, I'm just glad anybody reads any Bible in any version. And the point is, is, is uh, uh, to, to practice it, to do it. Uh, I mean, I'm involved in this, but if I overstated my case, I'd weaken it. If I said, hey, everybody in the world needs this. No, I, I don't even believe that. Uh, but I believe some people do. And, and uh, for me, uh, the Lord had put on my heart that you know, I had accepted Jesus, and then I was told I was a Christian, and I, I'm an ex-Jew, and forget all that, and just be ex something else. But you know, I, I looked at myself in the mirror, and I looked at my own heart, and I thought maybe people were telling me that, but God wasn't. I felt a draw to want to participate. Uh, I love the Jewish people. I love Jewish culture. I love the I love the scriptures. I, I want to help people. I want to help Jewish people come to know Jesus and I want to help Jesus people come to know Jews. That's what I'm into. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, uh, I'm glad that this translation contributes to that. And uh, I'm thankful that I've had the opportunity to work on that. And that's what that is for me. Once again, Bible, any version, go for it, but live it to your point. That's what it's all about. That's good. That's good. Dr. Seif, you're a busy guy. Uh, and I'm thankful that you took some time out of your day to answer the call and, and discuss this uh, Bible translation with us. We're thankful for your work and, and your work within uh, the Jewish community. I want to want to thank and thank you and, and honor you for your contributions uh, to uh, the ministry. And uh, for those of you who are watching and you're interested and in picking up uh, a TLV, uh, you can find a link for that in the description. If you're watching the program, you've never watched Remnant Radio before, we encourage you to subscribe, like the video, maybe share it around uh, if it's been a blessing to you. Uh, but also maybe go watch the interview that we did with Mark Ward uh, so that you can have like those two kind of opposing thoughts and, and work this out on your own. Uh, and if you're out there and you're like, hey, I want to support Remnant Radio, there are links in in the description to support the channel. You can give a one-time link uh, there on PayPal. You can give a one-time gift. Uh, but if you want to be a giver on Patreon, you can give as low as five bucks a month and get access to extra content every single month there on Patreon. Uh, so guys, thank you so much for tuning into this program and we'll see you Wednesday as we cover cessationism. It's going to be an exciting program. We'll see you then.
Want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.